you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you do, please turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verse 23 this morning of Colossians 1. This is found on page 1178 of your pew Bible, if you'd like to look on there this morning. And as you're turning there in your Bible, I want to remind you that we are in a very important moment in our study right now of Christ above all from the book of Colossians. A moment when God, through the apostle Paul, is magnifying the person and work of Jesus Christ. Remember, false teachers had begun to infiltrate the church there in Colossae. And these false teachers had begun to spread the lie that Christ alone is not enough to both satisfy God in heaven and equip you here on earth to live for the glory of God. They said that Jesus was good, but you also need private revelations. They said that Jesus was good, but you also need mystical experiences. They would say Jesus is good, but you also need external rules and regulations to truly arrive at a knowledge of God and a level of spiritual maturity. And because of that, believers in the Colossian church were starting to believe that there were two tiers of Christians, just as many believe and teach today. You know, there are those who just have Christ, and then there are those who can listen to still small voices. There are those who just have Christ, and then there are those who can speak in tongues. There are those who just have Christ, and then there are those who receive private revelations from God. There are those who just have Christ, and then there are those who can restrain from eating bacon and shrimp, trimming their beards, or listening to songs with vocal slides. And the argument goes, you don't want to be like someone who just has Christ, do you? And in fact, the arguments that were getting spread were worse than that. Those false teachers were starting to say, you can't be saved and truly spiritual unless you're experiencing or doing or observing all of these special, mystical, or restrictive things. In short, the person and work of Jesus Christ was being diminished among the body of believers there in Colossae. And so Paul, moved by the Holy Spirit, begins to exalt Jesus Christ in Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. In verses 15 through 18, Paul magnifies Christ's supreme worth. And in verses 19 through 23, he magnifies Christ's sufficient work. We'll finish that second section this morning, which is all about Christ's work of reconciliation that he accomplished when he died on the cross. Two weeks ago, we saw in verses 19 through 20 the extent of Christ's reconciliation, that Jesus Christ's work on the cross has set in motion a divine plan which will bring all things in this universe into right alignment with God, its creator. Last week in verses 21 through 22, we saw the effect of Christ's reconciliation, that when Jesus Christ's work on the cross is applied to a person's life, it produces a radical change in their nature from someone who was alienated who was hostile and who was doing evil deeds into someone who will one day stand before God holy, blameless, and above reproach in Christ Jesus. Well, this morning in verse 23, we're going to see the evidence of Christ's reconciliation. See, when Christ's work on the cross is applied to someone's life, you don't have to make it into eternity to determine whether you have, achieved, have received salvation or not. There is evidence that accompanies salvation. 
That inward transforming effect that is made to your heart by God's grace begins to show itself in your life. When you're born again, there is evidence. There is proof. And the evidence of Christ's reconciliation that Paul gives in verse 23 of Colossians 1 is that you continue in the truth. You continue in the faith. You don't depart. You don't drift away. You endure. You hold fast to Christ and to the hope of the gospel. This is how you know who is a Christian and who isn't. A true Christian is not marked by a one-time, single, momentary decision that they made in their life. A true Christian is marked by an ongoing commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. One that endures absolutely everything that life throws at it. Because a Christian possesses supernatural faith. A faith that is divine from the Lord. Continuing in the truth, this is the evidence of Christ's reconciliation in a believer's life. With that in mind, let's read Colossians 1, 19-23 for context. Colossians 1, starting at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of God, which those who fear God turn to, that they may know his testimonies. Let's pray. Father, we do turn to you at this hour to do the work that we cannot do. Father, we know that the natural man cannot understand the things of God. Left to ourselves, this would be a completely closed book. But Father, you have given us the mind of Christ. You have given us your spirit. And you daily give us grace. So Father, we cry out that this morning you would illuminate the meaning of Scripture to our minds and our hearts that we might understand the things that have been freely given to us from you. That we would understand the truth of your word. And Father, I pray that you would accompany the, the weak and insufficient teaching of your word with power. That it would convict the hearts that need to be convicted. That it would encourage the hearts that need to be encouraged. And that above all, that you would honor and exalt yourself in our midst this morning. As the great God who works mighty salvation in the hearts and minds of your people. Rule over us this morning, we pray. And change us by the power of your word. For your own glory and for the honor of Jesus Christ, we ask in his name. Amen. So after Paul lays out for us here 
the universal extent and transforming effect of Christ's reconciliation. He finishes at last by giving the ongoing evidence of Christ's reconciliation in verse 23. Paul writes, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Think about this. Paul has just said all these wonderful things in verses 19 through 22. That you have found peace by the blood of Christ's cross. That you have been reconciled to God by his death. That you have been transformed in your nature by his grace. And you have absolute assurance of glory through the holiness, righteousness, and blamelessness of Jesus Christ. If, if Paul puts a condition on it. All these things are true of you if indeed you continue in the faith. See, Scripture is replete with verses that teach that inward salvation always is outwardly evident. James 2.18 teaches us that we prove the genuineness of our faith. How? By our works. Our Lord Jesus taught on multiple occasions, you will surely know them. You will surely know who is saved and who is not by their fruits. Proverbs 20 verse 11 says, even a child is known by his actions, by whether his deeds are pure and right. And even as we study on our study of the gospel earlier in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that the saving gospel's message always is, We are saved by grace, through faith, unto what? Good works. You eliminate one of those. You no longer have the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Good works are not the basis of our salvation. But good works are always the byproduct of it in our lives. The evidence of it is Martin Luther, I mean the one who championed, justification by faith alone even he taught we are saved by faith alone but the faith that saves is never alone it is always accompanied by what evidence of a transformed life good works i want you to know beloved that the saving grace of jesus christ and the saving grace of god in christ is always accompanied by outward evidence always always Always, this is not preached in American churches anymore. This is a very critical conviction that every believer must come to in their own minds and hearts if we are ever to approach evangelism correctly beginning within our own homes. Listen, dear parents or grandparents. This morning, I love you, and I know you. I, too, am a parent. I know your heart for your children and your grandchildren. I know that nothing would give you greater peace of mind than knowing that your child is delivered from God's wrath for his sins, is born again, and is secured unto heaven. 
I know that every prayer your child has ever spoken is held close to your heart. I know that every decision they have ever made is cherished and remembered. I know that often you still catch yourself picturing them in your mind as that tender young one lying in bed open to the things of God. But listen, the evidence of salvation is not a prayer. The evidence of salvation is not a momentary decision or a past openness that someone once had towards God. The evidence of salvation is the existence of a transformed life. I beg you, parents and grandparents, do not, for the sake of your own peace of mind, deceive yourself regarding the spiritual state of your loved ones and retreat from the task of evangelism that lays right out in front of you within your own home. Do not go to bed tonight trying to comfort yourself about your children with a memory. Go to bed tonight knowing that you obeyed your master's call and you directly asked your children or your grandchildren whether they have truly trusted in Jesus Christ and are truly following after him for salvation. Do not be ashamed of the gospel, especially when it comes to your own children and grandchildren. Because evidence, because salvation is always accompanied by evidence. The evidence of a transformed life. As Titus 2, 11 through 12 teaches us, the same grace that brings salvation trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous to do good works. My question for all of you this morning is this. Can you see that training of God's saving grace at work in your own heart and life? Can you say this morning that you are leaving behind the pathways of sin and you are increasingly living a self-controlled, upright, and godly life in this present age? Can you say that in spite of everything going on in this present age, that you are self-controlled and you are still upright and you are still living in a godly manner because your hope and confidence is grounded in the return of Jesus Christ alone? Can you say that because of your eternal focus, your life is dominated, not by the events of this present age, but dominated with a zeal to serve others in light of your coming king? Is there evidence of God's saving grace in your life? See, God doesn't care about the still small voices that you have heard. He doesn't care about the tongues that you have spoken in. He doesn't care about the special knowledge or insight that you claim to possess. God does not care about any of the mystical experiences you have ever seen or felt. 
He doesn't care about your festivals or your church attendance or your observances or your holidays or your giving or anything else. God cares about this. Are you born again? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ? Will you see the kingdom of God? Is the evidence and effect of Christ's reconciliation present in your life? Are you redeemed? Is Christ in you? Are you in Christ? Do you pass the test? Does your life possess the evidence of salvation? Well, Paul mentions here that one of the outward evidences of inward salvation is continuing in the truth. So we can all examine ourselves in light of this this morning. Paul says all of these wonderful things in verses 20 through 22 are true if, as verse 23 says, if you do what? Continue, he says, in the faith. So how can you tell who is truly saved? It's not who someone made a prayer sometime. It's not who made a decision at once. How can you tell who has truly been reconciled? How can you tell who is truly standing before God, holy and blameless and above reproach in Christ? The answer is easy. Ask yourself this. Who is continuing? Notice continuing in what? It says continuing in the faith, right? See, the evidence of salvation is not continuing going to church. There are a lot of people who have gone to church that will end up in hell someday because they were trusting in that. The evidence of salvation is not continuing to carry a Bible around in your back pocket or even handing out tracts to people at work. The evidence of salvation is certainly not continuing to call yourself a Christian. The evidence of salvation is continuing, Paul says, in the faith. And notice, it is not just continuing in in faith, right? I'm just believing, right? Period. He says continuing in the faith, period. That is the defined faith, the once for all delivered unto the saints faith that is mentioned in Jude chapter 3. A true believer continues in that faith, the defined set of beliefs that are recorded and laid out in God's word. This is what a true believer believes obeys and continues in he holds fast to the word of god this is why a believer is called what a believer how can you be a believer and not believe what god has said (laughs) a believer believes he holds fast the word of god the grace of god let me put it this way always creates an allegiance to the word of god the grace of god creates an allegiance to the word of god That's what Jesus taught himself in Luke chapter 8 in the parable of the soils. The unredeemed are described there by Jesus as those who, when they heard the word, received it with joy. But having no root, they believed for a little while. And then what? In a time of testing, they did what? They fell away. This is how we make sense of people in the news like Rob Bell or Joshua Harris and the like. They sadly were never saved. They possessed Christ. They, they professed Christ, but they never possessed him. First John 2.19 says, they went out from us, meaning believers that were walking in the truth. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have listened to this. 
continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. That is the unredeemed. But what about the redeemed, those who have trusted in Christ, who have received the grace of salvation? The unredeemed, or excuse me, the redeemed, Jesus says in Luke 8, are those uh, genuinely saved, are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast, Jesus says, with an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. They hold it fast and bear fruit with patience. In other words, true believers continue in the word of God. They do not let it go. They continue in the faith. As our Lord Jesus said in John 8, 31, you are truly my disciples if you abide in my word. If you continue in it. You say, well, how? Well, it's described here as stable and steadfast. Now, those two, picture, those two words picture something. They picture a structure that is both placed on a foundation and being firmly secured and grounded into that foundation. That's how Paul describes the Christian life. He describes it the exact way Jesus described it. If you remember, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 24, that everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, it will be like a wise man who did what? Who built his house upon the rock. And what was the result of a life that's lived like that? Jesus said the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it had been grounded on the rock. It continued, you could say, stable and steadfast. Just as chapter 2, verses 6 through 7 of Colossians is going to teach us later, a true Christian is firmly secured, grounded, and immovably attached to Jesus Christ and his words. A believer sinks deep into the firm truths of Christ's holy word and and he lets it settle into his life. He allows God's words, God's testimonies, and God's promises to be his daily strength and security. This is the evidence of a transformed life. This is the evidence of Christ's reconciliation in a person's life. They continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. He says this, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. See, what's interesting is ancient Colossae is in a region of modern-day Turkey that is well-known for having and experiencing earthquakes. In fact, just last year, there was an earthquake right around the area of Colossae that killed over 50 people and injured over 2,000. Well, that was the same during the time that this letter was written. In fact, about 40 years before this letter was written, in 17 AD, the entire city of Colossae was leveled by an earthquake. And then in 60 AD, AD, which is either just before or just after this letter was written, Colossae was destroyed once again with another earthquake. So Paul takes that idea that those, those Colossian believers were well familiar with, and he says that true believers, right, those who have had Christ's reconciling work applied to their life, they are me metakineo. In other words, they are like earthquake-proof buildings, buildings that do not shift due to outside forces. Living in Colossae, you need to understand that if you were living in Colossae, there was no doubt in those believers' minds that earthquakes were going to come. The question was, is your building ready for the earthquake? Is it me metakineo? Paul takes that idea and he says, listen, beloved believers, followers of Jesus Christ, Living in this world, there is no doubt hardships are going to come, either through fierce trials 
or through false teachings. The question is, are you ready for them? Are you grounded upon Christ? Are you grounded upon his word? Now, Paul writes this for the purpose of self-examination and introspection, right? Is this true of you? But I want to encourage you right now with this glorious thought. If you are in Christ, no matter how weak or shell-shocked you feel this morning, these verses are describing you. That if you have truly built your life on the solid rock of Jesus Christ, then no matter what fierce trials you might face in this life, you will continue in the faith. If you have come to share in Christ, you will hold your original confidence firm until the end. Stable and steadfast without shifting. I have full confidence of this because what does God's word say? That he who began a good work in you will do what? He'll finish it. He'll not let you go. So Christian walk when you're in Christ is not dependent on your strength being able to hold on to him. It's dependent on his strength being able to hold on to you. And our God is able. Our God is able. No one can snatch you out of his hands. As Psalms 138 verse 8 says this. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for you. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. He will not forsake the work of his hands. As Jude 24 says, God is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He who called you is faithful, 1 Thessalonians 5.24 says, he will surely do that. We don't need to fear what tomorrow might bring. We don't, know what type, we don't need to fear what type of trials might come across our path. We know that in Christ we are held secure by his omnipotent hand. And the giver of faith keeps on giving. He keeps on giving. This is the evidence of Christ's reconciliation in a person's life. They continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. This is what we see from the life of Job. He undergoes so much hardship, and yet in the end he says, yet I know that I shall see God in the flesh when he comes to stand upon the earth. And so though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. How can you describe that? That is supernatural faith that comes by the grace of God. Because of the tremendous gale of false teaching that those Colossian believers were facing, Paul defines the true gospel that those believers were holding on to. The true gospel that they needed to hold on to, that they must not shift from, and that we must not shift from either. First, true believers, and this is so important for us in America today, true believers hold on to the gospel, and he defines that gospel as the gospel that you heard. Paul was telling the Colossian church, oh, hold on. I know you're going through trials. I know you're going through hardship. But hold on to the gospel. Hold on to the hope of the gospel. The gospel that you heard. That you heard from us, he says. As 2 Timothy 3.14 says, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you heard it. See, there were all those people that were going around the Colossian church saying, Hey, listen to me. I've got good news. I've got the gospel. I've got the gospel. Listen to me. And Paul says, you know, and, and that's just like today, right? People are going around saying, hey, I've got the gospel. It's called the social justice gospel. I've got the gospel. It's called the prosperity gospel. I've got the gospel. It's called the liberation gospel. Listen to me. Hold fast to my teaching. And Paul says, oh, no, you don't. 
<laughs> no, hold on to the true gospel. The gospel is verses 5 through 7 of Colossians 1 tells us that you heard before in the word of truth. The gospel that you learned of from faithful Epaphras. The, the gospel that has come to you and is bearing fruit to all those who understand the grace of God and truth. Hold fast to that gospel. Hold fast to the gospel because truth never changes. And the gospel never changes. When people try to come up to you and say, hey, you know, you don't understand the gospel unless you've read this really good book by this really good author. And you don't understand the gospel unless you understand terms like intersectionality and critical race. Man, you don't understand the gospel unless, unless you've read this book or you've read that so, this sociologist. When people say things like that, throw that in the trash where it belongs. That is worldly wisdom, and that is a false gospel. Hold on to the gospel that you've heard. If you're hearing something new and hearing the gospel applied to it, that's not something to quickly embrace. That's something to quickly be wary of. Hold on to the gospel that you heard. Second, Paul says, hold on to the gospel which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. That's the true gospel. That's the saving gospel. I mean, it's not the little niche gospel that circulates in your own little corner of the globe. Your own little, you might say, Colossian mystery religion, like they were experiencing. That's not the gospel. The true gospel, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel that is proclaimed everywhere in creation under heaven. Mark it down. If the gospel you're preaching is not true everywhere, it is not true anywhere. That's why you know that the prosperity gospel and that type of teaching is nonsense. Not only is it not in scripture, but God's will for your life is for you to be happy, healthy, and successful? Try telling that to the believers in the slums of Africa or in the persecuted churches in China. No, as Acts 14.22 says, those who enter the kingdom of God do so, listen to this, by continuing in the faith through many tribulations. That's the gospel. So don't let your culture, ladies and gentlemen, warp the gospel into its own image. And boy, do we see that today. Hold firm to the trustworthy word that's been taught. Hold fast to the gospel that's proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And of which I, Paul, became a minister. See, this might be controversial in some circles. But the true gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel that the apostle Paul preached. Paul is not very popular today. If you haven't noticed. He wrote nearly 30% of the New Testament, by the way. Uh, and being a minister of the gospel, he was politically incorrect even in his day. Saying things like God created two specific genders, each with their own distinct roles in the family and in the church. He would say things like marriages between one man and one woman and homosexuality and any perversion from that is a sin. He would say things like the Old Testament law has been fulfilled to those who are in Christ and you don't have to observe it any longer. He would say things like Adam was a historical figure. 
Statements like that fly in the face of our modern culture, even modern churches. But listen, our author, Paul, as verse 25 makes clear, was a God-ordained minister of the one true saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, beloved, if you leave the teachings of Paul behind, you have left the gospel of Jesus Christ behind as well. Because Paul was a minister and teacher of the gospel. And that's why Paul warns those Colossian believers, and he encourages them and us to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that they had heard. It's because this was the gospel that they had heard, it was the gospel that was being proclaimed in all creation, and it was the gospel of which Paul himself had become a minister. If there is someone here today who in their own mind and heart has been quietly thinking to themselves, this Christianity thing is all a wash. I'm out of here. This message is God's warning for you to carefully reconsider your decision. To turn your back on, your, on, the, on the faith. To turn your back on the defined set of beliefs as recorded in the pages of Scripture is to turn your back on the truths. Listen to me. The truths that so evidently reach beyond all time and space. The message of this book has been a message that has been preached. It is a message that has been believed, and it is a message that has been continued in, stable and steadfastly, without shifting, by innumerable individuals throughout countless generations, all this world over. And you are about to say, you who have been raised in a Christian church, that millions of individuals have lost their minds throughout all of time. And you have arrived at the truth. Do not discard the faith of the gospel so lightly. This is self-evident truth that reaches beyond time and space. To turn your back on this and to drift away from this is no small matter. So I encourage you this morning, if this is you, I encourage you for the sake of your own soul, do not depart so lightly. Rather, dig deep. Search the scriptures to see if these things that I'm telling you are so. Talk to them who have diligently continued in these truths faithfully and ask them to explain to you the faith and the hope of the gospel that they have so firmly believed before you so lightly walk away from it. And who knows? You might come to find yourself completely reborn and embracing these very truths as steadfastly as they. After all, this is the effect and evidence of Christ's reconciliation. It is a complete transformation and continuing in the truth. And we can testify to that because this room is a witness to that truth. To finish, I can't help but think this. That perhaps there is someone here who has been suddenly struck with the realization that this gospel, this reconciliation, this grace, and this salvation It's very real, and you are not. That you've been playing the Christian, the moral person for years. But deep down, you know that you haven't been transformed. You know that you do not have peace with God this morning. You know that you are outside of Jesus Christ, and your spiritual state before Him is alienated, hostile, and in love with evil deeds. I want you to know this morning as an ambassador for Christ, God making his appeal through me, that I implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You can be holy, 
You can be blameless and you can be above reproach before God this very morning where you sit because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross on your behalf, taking the wages and the punishment and the wrath for your sins upon himself so that you might be set free. Christ paid the cost for your free redemption. If you would take it. If you would take it. Cry out to God for redemption, for the forgiveness of sins in Christ, and he will save you. It is a promise. You can bet your life on it. Because Christ has done a sufficient work. Be reconciled to God. This is the word of God from Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 23, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience. To that end, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Christ. We thank you that he is the image of the invisible God. He is the invisible God made visible. We thank you that Jesus Christ is as great as he is proclaimed to be in your word. That he is the one that reigns supreme and preeminent over all things, the one in whom all things and for whom all things exist. He is the one who holds all things together. He is the one who contains and holds this universe beneath his absolute power and authority. And we thank you for Jesus Christ's greatness because we have been reminded of Jesus Christ's goodness. We thank you that this great God has worked for us a great salvation that we could never earn or merit. We thank you that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, we can be made alive to you through Christ Jesus. We thank you that this morning we have peace with you through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that this morning we know you and we love you and we obey you from the heart. No longer out of burden or fear or duty, but out of delight. Father, we thank you for the new life that you give to those who trust in Christ. I pray that you would impart it this morning to anyone who does not have it. If it be your will, Father, impart your saving faith and grace. Father, I... Pray for the rest of us that we would enter into this new week proclaiming one solitary message, the greatness and goodness of Jesus Christ, the hope of all the world. May we worship him rightly. May we love him truly. May we obey him fully for who he is and what he has done. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.